0: am 1420 the answer yes sir yes indeed it is eight minutes after 10 o'clock and hour number two is underway thanks for being with us hope does indeed spring eternal after a rough start to the broadcast we got all systems go now uh, all the pistons are firing and uh, thanks for being with us it is the 23rd morning of the third month of the year of our lord 2021 it is a tuesday and you know what that means it is Kersenau Day. Peter now joining us now. He is a member of the United States Commission on Civil Rights, the longing, longest, rather, uh, such serving member. He is also a member of the now defunct 1776 Presidents Commission. He is also uh, a Cleveland attorney and a best-selling author, among other titles. Most importantly, he's our friend and guest each and every Tuesday. Pete, good morning. How are you, sir?
1: I'm doing great, Bob. 321 days into the Super Bowl, and Kersenau will be playing at least one play. I hope.
0: You keep on hoping that, my friend. I said hope springs eternal. I didn't, I didn't necessarily mean that, but yes, it applies here as well. Hope springs eternal. For Peter Kirsten. Okay, Pete, um, a lot of ground to cover here in the next two and a half segments that we have with you. We are going to talk to Congressman Jim Renacci, uh in the second half hour because we did not get him in the first hour, first half hour of the program as planned about House or Senate Bill 22 being vetoed by Mike DeWine. But, Pete, I want to get outside of Ohio, and I want to go down to our southern border. You know who does not want to go to the southern border? Kamala Harris, who responded this way when asked. Do you plan to visit the border? Uh, Um,
2: not today,
0: (laughs) but um, I have before, and I'm sure I will again. I have before, and I'm sure I will again. (laughs) There is tragedy at the border there is suffering at the border there is human trafficking at the border there are drugs pouring across the border there are gang members pouring across the border there are children being kept in not cages but in cellophane cages or shipping containers by the thousands there is there are an uncovid tested people pouring across the border they're giving uh, uh, would-be asylum seekers, free access to the United States without a court date requiring them to return to have their uh, their asylum cases heard. And she is responding about the problems at the border yeah. by laughing. Do you plan to visit the border? Uh, um, not today. <laughs> <laughs> Pete, I, I, I don't mean to fixate on her doing this, but we have all seen this. This is her defense mechanism. When she has a question, she cannot answer. When she is caught in a, in a situation that she has zero preparation for, she just laughs it off <laughs> not today. It just completely underscores the ineffectiveness, the unpreparedness, of the entire Biden administration, when it comes to dealing with the crisis, they refuse to acknowledge. Go ahead.
1: Well, we've known for quite some time that she's a bubblehead. If we've watched her during debates during the Democratic primaries, uh, she always had the deer in the headlights look. It really is kind of astonishing that she is purportedly, you know, a was purportedly a prosecutor. I don't think she ever actually tried a case, but she was a figurehead. But she's very bad on her feet. But what's in, one of the things that's infuriating about this, she's able to get away with such a casual, uh, insensitive comment. Because we do have a crisis at the border. It's a humanitarian crisis. It's a national security crisis. It's an economic crisis. It's a health crisis. And yet she's over here chuckling because she knows she can get away with it with the media. The media won't challenge her on it. The media that – think about this. If you do a quick Google search for kids in cages under Trump, you'll get – 420 million hits, but they are completely missing in action, meaning the media, when it comes to a far worse situation at the border right now. We had kids in cages under Trump, and remember, those so-called cages were all built under the Obama-Biden administration, but media doesn't care about that, of course. But right now, if you take a look at what's going on at the border, Trump had during during the height of the problem with kids on on cages, which was at the beginning of this uh, administration, the media went nuts because they found approximately two thousand kids who had been detained in so called cages that by the way were built by the Obama administration. Now we have fifteen thousand kids. In a time of a pandemic, who have not been tested for COVID, uh, and when they do test for COVID, not just the kids, but all of the illegal aliens coming over, the cohort test of, uh, tests at at least 10%. Yet they're being released into the United States without any report orders, without any uh, appearance in court orders. They're they're gone. Not that they would return anyway, because when we did a study at the Civil Rights Commission about the number of legal immigrants when they're released with Notices to appear, something like 95. I don't remember the exact number, Bob, so I don't want to give you a false number, but it was in the 90th percentile. Don't ever return. It's a joke. So, the Biden administration that's telling us we need to lock down, wear masks, you can't come to the United States if you're flying in without a COVID test. When it comes to illegal aliens, they're treated better than everybody in the world. They are special people in this administration, they're better Americans than we are, as they've said. As Nancy Pelosi has said, they are akin to the founding fathers. The fact that most of America isn't in a complete uproar about this is indicative of how the media has suppressed the evidence. But I would say, you know, if you take a look at the polls, they've not done a very good job because the, the American people understand what's going on. They understand of all the crises I mentioned, you know, the the, the humanitarian crisis, the, the uh, health care crisis. But the economic crisis, we have got millions of people out of work, and everyone intuitively gets the fact that when you bring in unemployed, low-skilled workers, that means they're going to be competing at lower wages with Americans for whatever available jobs start to open up after the shutdowns. Well, many of the shutdowns have been lifted in responsible states, but after the shutdowns broadly are lifted. This is a, an incredible catastrophe, and yet the media is asleep at the switch. Not Let, me, only let that, me jump
0: in for a second, Pete, on that. Normally, you and I are in lockstep about the media. The enemy of the people, as President Trump called them, for a good reason. In this particular case, I may give them a break, because the Biden administration has the entire border on full-on, uh-huh. Uh, full-on blackout. Um, The media is not allowed to go down there. They're not allowed to have cameras inside the facilities. All of the images that they used to tug on the heartstrings and play on the emotions of the people with the kids in cages, of little kids sleeping underneath those foil blankets inside the fenced partitions, which is all they were. Fences separating adults from kids, so the kids can't be victimized for crying out loud. But they called that kids in cages and used it to just tear at the heartstrings of Americans. They will not allow cameras and and uh, 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 media down there to interview. And, and even CNN, even, you know, the the you know the mainstream, uh, the uh, uh, major networks, you know, while they are certainly are carrying the water and always have for the Democrats, they would like to go down there and see what's going on because it'll help their ratings. And they can't get there because the Biden administration is essentially called a media blackout. It's the least transparent uh, presidential administration literally in the history of the republic.
1: All true, Bob, but since when has the media been so complacent, so compliant when told you can't go to some place in the United States of America and film these things? Where would they have been if the Trump administration had even thought about doing something like this? The media is complicit in this. They are so, um, I can't even think the appropriate word, but they are lying down for this administration, not posing any difficult questions. And where's the enterprising media that we would ordinarily have if it was a Republican administration, let alone a Trump administration? Administration, right. when they would go down there and find mechanisms and means by which to secure the reports to secure the photos they would have done it you know they would have done it in this particular case they lob softball questions to jim Psaki, who in return lies to their face everyone knows they're lying this is what's so incredible in 2021 america the media will accept lies the the democrats will lie to our face and then the media will dutifully reported without hardly any criticism. I mean, there are some uh, exceptions to that, of course. But if you look at the mainstream media, they, without blinking, will do things such as report uncritically without any editorial comment. Jen Psaki's lie that this was all the doing of the Trump administration. I mean, that's such a hollow misrepresentation. Not, not
0: just Saki, but Alejandro Mayorka, the uh, the, new, uh, the, um, uh, Majorca, the new leader of the the uh, new leader of the Department of Homeland Security. They both are saying the same thing that that they uh, Trump dismantled uh, the immigration system, and so they were dealt, uh, they were handed or inherited essentially uh, a system that was broken. As President Trump said uh, in a statement, I think it was on Sunday, we handed them the most secure border in recent American it, history. Exactly All right. They had to do was just keep keep the thing on autopilot and keep the procedures and policies in place and will be manageable. They tore it all down literally day one on the inauguration day when, when Biden signed the order to stop the construction of the wall, they, they, they literally undid every single element that Trump had worked so hard to put in place to control the border. And now Mayorkas and Saki and Biden and Harris are all claiming that they inherited a mess.
1: Yeah. And it's happening with such rapidity and it was predictable Bob, you and I talked about this. We knew this was going to happen. They are taking actions that harm America and Americans solely because it's something that Trump did. They didn't do an evaluation of whether or not those policies were meritorious, whether or not there was any um, um, reason why we shouldn't dismantle it. Anybody with an, you know, just a modicum of brains would understand that if you dismantled what Trump had been doing, because we had a crisis at the border when Trump got there because of the Biden administration. Right. He rectified it to a large extent with, as you indicated, most secure border we've had, at least since the Reagan administration. We're actually in the middle of the Reagan administration. And yet the Trump administration, I'm sorry, the Biden administration came in and because they've got this kind of incredible insanity with respect to anything related to Trump. They dismantled it, and America is hurting as a result. Now, if they're constantly talking about or being concerned about super spreader events, they're concerned about uh, the, the economy, what they're doing is palpable harm to America and Americans. Uh, you, know, you know, they have, uh, I think Peter Now I don't know if it's Peter Ducey, but I saw one report. It may have simply been a commentary on the Quayar video, but they made note of the fact that many of the kids were visibly ill. Now, they don't know if they necessarily had COVID, but they were visibly ill. They're packed into these facilities. Sometimes they are 700% at capacity, and yet, you know, big deal. We will just release them into the interior of the United States with no idea where they're going, no tracking systems or anything like that. And who cares about COVID now? We get blamed if a couple of us, you know, Biden just very, I mean, it was just great that he permitted us in his first address to, by July 4th, maybe get together with a few of our friends and family members in a cookout in our backyard. Thanks very much. But here, thousands of people are flooding across the border, coming from circumstances where we don't know what kind of health care was available to them, if, if at all. And, you know, go wherever you want to. And also, while you're doing that, go ahead and compete against Americans for jobs. And, you know, if you can't find housing right away, hey, we've just secured an $82 million contract to put you in hotels. We will put you illegal aliens in hotels at taxpayer expense, but we won't pay for hotels for National Guardsmen that we place around the Capitol because we want to maintain this fiction that the United States is under siege by white supremacists. This is one of the greatest... uh, (laughs) I'm going to try to moderate my statements. <laughs> I'm getting a little bit excited about this, but it merits it, Bob. I know we are seeing one of the great travesties unfolding, at least one of the greater travesties ever unfolding at the outset of any presidential administration.
0: Peter Kirsten, I will come right back with us with more uh, right after this on AM 1420. Okay, 1025. We continue now with Peter Kersenow on AM 1420, The Answer. All right, Pete, let's uh, move on a little bit to um, something you – I just did an interview with Lori Cardo Zamora of uh, proclaiming justice to the nations, and you kind of mentioned it a few minutes ago, too, when you talk about race and white supremacy uh, uh, being blamed for everything uh, in the United States right now. And I want to talk about critical race theory briefly here for the next five minutes. Ron DeSantis uh, is the first governor that I know of that has declared there will be no critical race theory taught in Florida public schools. Uh, I love it. I support it. I don't know exactly how he'll enforce that. I don't know if he will demand that the school board, uh, the state school board, uh, present all curriculum being pushed in the uh, in the schools, or uh, what will happen if there's a legislative battle, but he has said not on his watch. How important is it, Peter Kersenow, for government to take note of what is being done in the schools in terms of curriculum that is set to, or that is intended to, rather, divide the races, multiple races, not just black and white, but essentially to divide the races and to teach young children to hate this country for its uh, racist, uh, uh, you know, and and white supremacist and white privileged um, uh, founding. It's
1: imperative. It's one of the reasons why I was pleased to be on the 1776 Commission with a number of noted scholars, because what we're seeing here is the disintegration of America. If If you just sit back for a moment and think about what's been happening over the last several years, it's been going on for decades, but the acceleration has been profound in the last three, four years. What we're seeing is the kind of cultural change that would only transpire if we had lost a war. In fact, we fight wars to prevent the imposition of this type of ideology on the United States of America. And it's critical both domestically and in terms of our foreign relations also, as we saw last week, when the worst offender in human rights in this war, in the entire world, the communist Chinese, was lecturing the United States of America on our alleged human rights abuses using as a platform the BLM rhetoric, the 1619 rhetoric. This is just an amazing thing. It's affecting our foreign policy also. And it's not an overstatement to say that you know, did we lose a war? You wake up and you kind of ask yourself, what happened here? We're being taught that our country is awful, that the founding is awful, that that historical characters throughout history are awful racists, that the United States is endemically racist, systemically racist, that you you can't advance in the society unless you get a special benefit from the government of the of the United States. It, it, we are changing societal institutions and norms as a result of a completely false narrative one that is anti-american at its core and any nation that teaches its younger generations that it's not worthy of defense that it is an awful nation that that was flawed from its founding cannot long exist it either implodes or it's, it renders itself susceptible from for for foreign inter, interference. Who would want to fight for a country that is this awful? But more, but but just as importantly, why is our educational institutions? Why are there educational institutions? I guess I need more English education. Why are educational <laughs> institutions teaching our kids falsehoods? Every single governor, every single state legislator, every single person in federal government who cares about America should be up in arms about this and challenging this. Now, there are governors such as DeSantis, Nome, and others who are taking a very strident position, as they should, even more energetic, I would argue, um, would that every governor had done this. I know of a number of citizens groups, I'm I'm working with one myself, that is trying to get the eradication of this poisonous ideology from our school systems. And there's legislation that can be drafted. I drafted some model legislation. I've sent it around to a couple of um, um, politicians that have been receptive to this. Um, There are a number of states who have at least initiated at one of in one of their chambers, legislative chambers, some type of legislation that would bar the teaching of it doesn't say explicitly critical race theory, but legislation uh, that would bar the type of teaching that would tell falsehoods about history, that would divide kids on the basis of race or any other immutable characteristic. There are a lot of ways that you can do this. at least, according to one of the premier First Amendment uh, uh, scholars that I'm aware of, Eugene Volokh, he maintains that schools do not have unfettered license to go ahead and teach whatever they want to. The government can, in fact, restrict. Uh, in other words, it's not completely First Amendment um, protected. It can restrict certain pedagogy, uh, you know, with a rational basis. Mm-hmm. And this is more than a rational basis. This is a compelling state interest here. So you have to really wonder what is the left up to, but you don't have to wonder much. What they're trying to do is fundamentally transform America. When many of us heard Obama utter that phrase, we got chills. We knew he meant it, and boy, they have been on a 13-year quest to do just that.
0: They, they, they have been doing exactly that. You're a 1,000% right. He said it in those words. Chuck Schumer modified it a little bit when he screamed, we're going to take Georgia and then change America, which is fundamental transformation. And now Joe Biden has essentially admitted that Barack Obama is calling the shots in his presidency. By declare, he literally admitted that he is in regular, constant contact with Barack Obama on the issues of the day. So uh, there's no doubt that Barack Obama... Still running the show, as he did when Joe Biden was his feeble, incompetent vice president. More from Curse now, right after this, on AM 1420, The Answer. Have a question
1: for Bob, a comment, a complaint, or if you
0: just want to be part of the show, call
1: 216-901-0945. That's 216-901-0945. Call the Bob France Authority. Okay, 10.37
0: now. We've got one short segment left with Peter Kersenow here on AM 1420, The Answer. Then we're going to talk to Congressman Jim Renacci, who... He has his eye on the governor's uh, race, even though he has not yet announced he is a candidate for that position. But he's going to talk to us about Governor Mike DeWine and his decision to veto Senate Bill 22, which would give some of the power to make decisions in a health emergency to the legislature, not just to the executive. So that's coming up in just a bit. Peter, I want to get back with you now and talk about President Trump, former President Trump, who was unceremoniously booted from most of the major social media platforms, including Twitter and Facebook essentially saying that he was encouraging violence and encouraging unrest by posting things about the quote-unquote big lie, as they call it, that were untrue. Since he has left office, many people have called for him to get involved in social media, and apparently that's now on the docket, that's on the uh, to-do list. According to multiple reports yesterday, we're maybe two to three months away from seeing the release of President Trump's own social media platform. Do you think this is a good move for President Trump to start his um, uh, his own, you know, Twitter, his own Facebook? I don't know what he's going to call it, but do you think it's a good move for him to reach out to um, would be users in such a way?
1: I don't know if it's a good move for him. Um, and I'm agnostic about whether or not it's a good move generally. I know I'm excited about it. I think everybody wants to see President Trump back on social media. Uh, I do think it's important that there's an alternative to the big tech monopoly, which is uniformly hard left and which has deplatformed conservatives with impunity. I think it's extremely important from a free speech perspective, not a governmental free speech per- perspective. I think we've been you know, much too myopic and only thinking about the government's restrictions on free speech now we see that, my goodness, monopoly organizations can really have a profound effect on our free speech rights in ways that we could never have imagined even, say, 15 years ago. So I think it's imperative that we have somebody who has oh, – look, he has a platform uh, in terms of appeal that's unparalleled. Even his enemies want to hear from him. Um, from his perspective, you know, it's interesting. It's just an observation, and, and I'm not saying that Trump should be quiet or anything, but when uh, Trump is not out there – tweeting and, you know, making comments on a regular basis, um, you know, his enemies don't have anything to seize upon. Now, his enemies are flailing around trying to blame, for example, as we discussed, the crisis at the border on him. But if he's not front and center and making comments to kind of resuscitate his enemies' uh, bile, then you know, they have a hard time, they flail around and have got to come up with actually other excuses. Now the media provides them to them or simply refuses to cover their failures. But it's a different thing than when Trump is out there invisible and then he presents himself as a target. Nonetheless, he loves being a target. And uh, I'm, I'm not you know, one of those individuals who think Trump should remain silent and that uh, you know, he's providing you know, the, his, himself uh, as a target. And he shouldn't give the media a target or excuses to divert attention from Joe Biden. I think that we need alternate platforms, and what better one than one from former President Trump? You know he is going to get lots and lots and lots of followers or people who participate on his platform, and I think that's a healthy thing for for democracy.
0: I will agree with the democracy part, and I will agree with the good-to-have-another-platform that isn't going to be monitored and censored by the leftists at Twitter and in the rest of Silicon Valley. I don't think it's a good idea for President Trump.
1: Uh, yeah, and that's why I said, Bob, I'm, I'm, I'm agnostic about that. I agree. I know you are. I, I, you. You
0: are. I, just, I just want to give you another you know, vantage point of it and get your response to it, because the old adage of absence makes the heart grow fonder, I think, is a thousand percent in play with Donald Trump. I think yeah. the more people don't hear from him, the more they miss him. And the more they watch Biden fumble and stumble, not literally up the stairs, although that's funny uh, in a weird way. Uh, but, you know, Biden's uh, policy fumbles and stumbles. You know, the, the better President Trump looks by comparison, if he gets on a Twitter or his own version of Twitter and is constantly saying things that polarize people, that energize his base and get everybody applauding with the red meat, but that really frustrate and upset other people with maybe the lack of decorum, um, I think it hurts. I think if he really wants to expand his brand, either as a candidate again in 2024 or as a king maker, I think the less he's on social media, the better it is because we really miss the, the policies of the guy
1: yeah I agree um you know that's why I have some reticence about it um there's that old adage of when you're enemy or your opponent is self-destructing, get out of the way and let him do it, you know. Right. And uh, Trump has a way of stepping on his own message very often. It's a great message. We, it turns out Americans actually like and love his policies right. uh, to the extent if he lost the election, okay, I'm, I hope the National Guard or whomever doesn't come after me for even speculating as to whether or not this election wasn't completely on, on the up and up. But let, let's just say if President Trump lost the election, then some of it may be due to the fact that he's given him he's made himself a very very big target and he looms large over everything that goes on in this country and i think by looming large as opposed to actually injecting himself forthrightly into the debate he actually can have much more influence people like his policies they to the extent people did not like uh, him at all. It was because of his tweeting, because of the negative implications, uh, that were cast upon him from the media. Uh, and you know, I mean, I'm not saying that people didn't have good faith reasons not to like him, but, you know, the, to the extent he didn't kind of pick at that scab, I think people look back fondly at the fact that, hey, we had secure borders. We were respected across the world. Our economy was the greatest in the history of the world. You know, all these things that he done that the Democrats are systematically dismantling
0: running stuff. And about so corporate Trump- taxes that he lowered for virtually all Americans, you know, Biden's now eyeing a 3 trillion dollar spending package on top of the two trillion dollar quote unquote coronavirus relief spending package. He's announced all kinds of tax uh, hikes that are going to impact so many millions of Americans. And yes, I think Donald Trump will be looked at very fondly if he doesn't get out there and queer up his own historical performance with messaging that might be a little bit less than palatable uh, for some. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how the whole thing plays out when he launches. Peter Kirsten out. Always a pleasure, my friend. Thank you. God bless. Take care, Bob. All right, you got it, sir. It's 1044. We'll get out. We'll come back in with former Congressman Jim Renacci, who's got thoughts on Ohio SB22 and the current governor's impending veto of said legislation. That's next. All right, Congressman. I was about to read a few words from your statement that you sent out about uh, the veto of SB 22, but now that you're here, why don't you put it in your own new words? Tell us how you what you think about Mike DeWine saying that SB. First of all, SB 22. would actually uh, would actually be in violation of the separation of powers. I think it's just the opposite. The separation of powers in Ohio's government uh, are being you know are 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 being uh, mangled, if you will, by Mike DeWine's ignoring of the of the legislature and of the judiciary when it comes to orders that they have made. So, what is your what are your thoughts on DeWine's uh, uh, accusation that this bill actually uh, gives too much power to the other branches?
2: Well, Bob, I 100% agree with you, and it's one of the reasons I put that statement out. And what's so uh, disingenuous is this governor never really negotiated with the legislature. And I know that for a fact because I was talking to the legislature as they drew up this bill. Uh, they told me that Lieutenant Governor Usted came over at one point in time and said, well, we don't want you to do this, and we don't want you to do that, gave them no suggestions, and then just walked out of the room which shows that they really didn't care. Their, their plans are to continue to have this authority and power and not even talk to the legislature, which is really the will of the people. So, Peter continues to think he is the king. He is the one who has the ultimate authority, and really it's the people that have the ultimate authority through the legislature.
0: He said to reporters after SB 22 passed the House, I believe it was at a press conference, quote, we want to work with the General Assembly. We want to include them. We want to have conversations. But to me, what it seems like, he only has conversations with select members. And secondly, he just has conversations, not anything that would lead to actionable items, including agreeing on something that they can take back to the legislature and have a vote on. He just listens to them and then does what he wants.
2: Well, and again, that's the problem because, uh, the people of Ohio don't realize the true backstory where he didn't, he wasn't talking to anybody. He sent the lieutenant governor into a meeting who basically said, we don't want you to do this and we don't want you to do that. That's not negotiations and that's not working with the legislature. What that is, is basically snubbing your nose at the legislature and saying, we'll just veto it. Uh, that's why I hope that this legislature does stay strong and override this veto. It is not as the governor has said, and of course, you know, he gets on, he was on TV yesterday just talking about this. But in the end, this is the will of the people. That's what's so frustrating for me. This is not uh, the governor's uh, will. This should be the will of the people.
0: Yeah, and what this does, Congressman, too, is, you know, the importance of an SB 22 is it isn't just dealing with this current governor. It deals with future governors who may have similar mindsets. It it, it it requires the legislature, as you say, which is the people. These are our representatives speaking for us to have a say in what is done to us in the event of a pandemic or a health emergency. But he opposes this bill in part because he says this will not allow or actually it will, will preclude the state health department from Forcing someone into quarantine until they've been medically diagnosed with an illness or come into contact with someone who has, he, he sees that as a negative. I see that as a positive. I see that as as constitutional. You can't force a healthy person into a quarantine type of situation, which they have done now in the state of Ohio for about a year in some form or another. But you cannot quarantine healthy people uh, based on unmitigated or uh, you know substantiated as a better word, unsubstantiated fear that they might be sick.
2: Well, Bob, here's the other thing. Any bill can be challenged by legal proponents, and I get that. Um Here we have a governor who has basically challenged the legal system with many of his orders, and he's being challenged by many people. There are still lawsuits out there challenging his authority. And in the end, he comes out and says this bill is unconstitutional. Well, again, that's his position. We already know his position in many cases is unconstitutional as well, which is ridiculous when he when he talks about some of these issues anything can be challenged he's an attorney there are plenty of attorneys in the state legislature who have looked at this there is a legislative services commission who looks at it they would not put an unconstitutional bill up Um, and in the end this is just the governor talking again putting points out there and trying to win over votes i mean it's so frustrating because he knows that his a re-elections coming up So he goes out on the TV and he talks about how he's doing this for the betterment of the people, for the betterment of Ohioans. The truth of it is, he's not. He's doing this to continue to keep his authority. In the end, you said this This is not just about him. This is about future governors and future uh, governments in in Ohio who are going to overstep their bounds when it comes to health issues. So uh, I'm glad to see this legislature has finally come to the table with this bill And I'm hoping they override his veto and move forward.
0: Last June, Mike Dewine said that uh, he was requiring a mask mandate, uh, putting in a mask mandate for four to six weeks. He said, "If Ohio does this for four to six weeks, we'll smash the spread of this thing and we'll be fine." Now we are what? Since last June, how many is that? Nine months? Ten months? Uh, s- uh, nine months, I guess. Since last June, and we're still dealing with this. So this would this bill would essentially stop him from being able to enact an indefinite mandate of of this type. Uh, and if he, you know, first of all, they could just immediately vote. Could the legislature? immediately vote to get rid of it, and then even better, it prevents him from introducing or, or uh, dictating a similar type of measure for another 60 days. Uh, so that's, that's the importance here. Now we are talking about balance of power. Now we're talking about people who speak for the people in the uh, General Assembly, talking with uh, the executive on behalf of everybody, not just on behalf of the, you know, what uh, Mike DeWine deems to be essential.
2: Well, you're exactly right. It is about balance of power. And you're exactly right about this. Look, Mike DeWine overstepped his bounds a year ago. And he said that it was to protect Ohioans and protect the health issues of Ohio. But Ohio's fared no better than states that have done less or little, which shows you that his overreach really did not protect Ohioans any better than many of the states who did less. So in the end, this is overreach, this is government overreach, and it's the one thing that frustrates me more than any when one individual can can have this much power and then tell the legislature, well, I'm just going to veto it to continue to keep that power. Right. This is uh, the worst of the worst, and uh, I hope your listeners, I keep saying, I hope people remember this when the election comes around next year because we can't have anyone in a governor's seat who thinks that they can have this much power without the legislature having some say in it as well
0: well and i also hope ohioans will contact their representatives and their senators to make sure they vote to override this thing so that we can have a say do you have any contact with any members of the general assembly congressman and uh, uh, are you confident they'll have the votes to override i
2: i do and it's one of the reasons why i knew exactly what was going on and the governor did not was not willing to negotiate and uh they they do believe they have the votes but you know like anything else, uh, votes can change. The governor will be making phone calls. We are a pay-for-play state. The governor will always use that pay-for-play power to, uh, and the authority that, that he can have to try and help some of these individuals. It's the problem with our government. It's not about the will of the people. Too often, it's about a will of the person who has the authority and the power, which in this case, is a governor, and we need to be able to pull that power back.
0: they got 25 on the bill on the Senate side. They need 20 for an override. they got 57 on the House side. They need 60 for an override. But Speaker Cup says they had several who were absent that day, and he is absolutely sure that he has the votes to override. So we'll uh, watch and see how that plays out, and Congressman Renese will stay in touch. By the way, any closer to making an announcement of any kind?
2: No, we're continuing to move forward, and like I tell everybody, my goal is to continue to make sure I'm educating the people and letting them know exactly what, the, what uh, is going on in the state, and then uh, okay. the decision is going to be easy. It's going to be the people's decision, not my decision.
0: All right. Well played, sir. Thanks for your time today. Thank you. That's Jim Renacci, who worked and got him. We got him on. It was a struggle, but we got him on. I think the fourth or fifth time turned out to be the charm. Thanks to everybody for being a part of the show today. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to our crew. Have a safe day. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye bye.